Hello and welcome to another episode of the DOS Game Club podcast. This is episode 72 in which we're discussing the game we played back in August, which is 1991's Eye of the Beholder by Westwood Associates and published by Strategic Simulations Inc., also known as SSI. I'm not going to be talking about this game by myself as ever. I'm Martijn, Tijn on the forums, and joining us, uh, well, as ever as well, is our trusty co-host Florian. Hello. Hello. I thought for a second you had forgotten my name. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, no. Who, sorry, who are you? <laughs> I'm just this guy. No, no, of course not. We're, we're trying to catch up. It feels like we're recording a lot of podcasts, but... You know, tw 20 years in the future, nobody will remember that we were late on this specific month no. or the five months before and after. So just don't mention it. Exactly. So anyway, we've got people here, all veterans, really, discussing the game. First of all, returning from just one episode ago, it's Richard. Oh, yeah, two in a row. First time, look. Yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know, if the, is, there an, is there a name for that? <laughs> Two in a row. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, glad to have you back. Different kind of game, though. Yeah, there's a little, there's a little bit of puzzling, I guess, in here, but yeah. More of an uh, RPG type thing, fantasy, but yeah, still still up your alley, I hope. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's good. Um, and also joining from, well, two, three episodes ago, it's Bjorn. Hello. Hi. Also known as Tiger Quoll on the forums. I think the last one you joined us for was KKND, right? That's right, yep. So, also a very different type of game. Yes. <laughs> Although I think, I think your, your uh, well, this, this dungeon crawler type thing is also really up your alley, isn't it? Uh, yeah, among other things. Um, this series in particular, especially number two, kind of uh, has, has a special spot for me, so that's sort of why I want to be on this episode. But um, I mean, yeah, you know, I'm quite uh, keen on uh, things like um, uh, Ultimore Underworld and, and that sort of thing as well. So yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it's definitely up my alley. Perfect. Well, we'll talk all about that and more. So uh, yeah, let's get into it, Florian. Let's get into it.
right. So first things first, you were just editing it in the in our notes document. Who suggested this game? So yeah, why, why don't you tell us who just who suggested the game, Florian? John did, right? <laughs> AKA Shattered, who has been on a couple episodes in the past. Last one was Day of the Tentacle, I think, and sent in many a voice message as well. Mm, that as well. Thanks for the suggestion. It's definitely interesting to look at one of these games. It's um, a dungeon crawler, I would say, first person game, but. Eye of the Beholder did not invent this genre <laughs> at all. It's a whole world of these type of games, and Eye of the Beholder is just just one of them. Yeah. Uh, so we'll we'll talk about what sets it apart and maybe maybe what doesn't. So if we do a quick round of who played this game before, starting with you, Florian, have you played this game before? No, <laughs> I, I haven't <laughs> even been aware of this specific um, dungeon crawler game. And in fact, I've never played any dungeon crawler before. Mm. So this was my first contact with the entire genre. Yeah. I mean, I knew about the genre, you know, but uh, I, I didn't really follow what was going on there, neither back then nor recently. And mm -hmm. so this was very new to me. Yeah, I can relate. I mean, I'm honestly, I'm the same. It's not like I didn't know about it, but I don't know. It never really particularly had an attraction on me, I think. Being stuck in a dungeon, I don't know. I, I can do without. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I just grew up in the age where proper, in quotation marks, 3D um, RPGs were already up, out there, you know. So mm. dungeon crawlers just never really, yeah, as you said, it caught my attention. Yeah, because this genre is really old. We'll, we'll get into it in a bit, but yeah, this goes way back. This goes way back to the, I think, to the start of the PC and the, the home computer. Probably even further back than that. I think there were some uh, old, obviously not first person, but um, top-down dungeon crawlers on like university mainframes and things like that as well. Yeah, this is uh, really one of the original game formats or yeah this is and and of course it has its roots in uh pen and paper games so mm. yeah it goes even beyond the computer like even before that so yeah so that makes sense that it's one of the early genres to be found on computers because it was already a genre that was popular outside of, mm. of yeah video games and also of course the the huge overlap in in nerdum mm. between PCs <laughs> and fantasy stuff is a big part of this, I would say. Surely you have played fantasy role-playing games in general, Florian. Yes, definitely. On, on the PC and pen and paper. Ah. In fact, I've, I've even played a little bit of Dungeons & Dragons, but I never found a group that stuck together for long enough to actually know much about AD&D or D&D. Hmm. So you are aware of the whole subculture that this fits into. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, of course. Which is huge. But yeah, same. I just never played it. So I'm I'm kind of keen to learn more about it, to be honest. So I hope our guests have played other games and know more about this, but well, <laughs> we'll find out. So uh, yeah, Richard, I mean, I imagine you've played a few of these at least. Yeah, yeah. My first one was... Ultima Underworld a couple of years after. That's still one of my favourite games. That, that was like full 3D. Mm. But there weren't. I, was, I spent quite a bit of the 90s looking for something like that and didn't find too much. I went back and played quite a few of these blobber-type games. Uh, I think... I, only, I think I only played Eye of the Beholder 2 back then, rather than the first one. And I don't think I got that far, because it didn't have an auto-map. I'd sort of been spoiled by starting with an auto-map. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You stepped in... Well, 
around the end of the genre, maybe? Like no, no, it was, it was about not, well, they, it kept going for a few years. Uh, hmm. They're certainly still making them in the mid nineties. The flight Stone Keep was coming out, and Might and Magic later ones. But yeah, so I, I didn't actually play the first. I, I did go back a few years back and play the first one, Eye of the Beholder, on the Amiga. So this isn't my first time playing it. All right. Yeah, but I was just thinking that if you if you step in really late into the development, then you're sort of spoiled maybe by all of the features they've added over the years. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So this game is maybe a bit bare bones, although this is not one of the early ones, I would say, Eye of the Beholder. I think it might have been like the first big one on the PC that sort of really tried to do what Dungeon Master had done on the ST. Mm. Have you played that one, Dungeon Master? Yeah, just recently, actually. So it's a lot harder. Well, it's quite harder going, I'd say, than this. It's a lot more puzzly, possibly better design, but I think the main innovation over Dungeon Master is that different walls or whatever <laughs> when we get onto that. Because <laughs> you just have one dungeon that looks exactly the same throughout the entire game in Dungeon Master. Right. It's all the grey walls, while in Eye of the Beholder, the, every, I think every three levels, the colour changes. Something yeah. like yeah, Yeah, <laughs> basically. <laughs> well, Dungeon Master, I, I, maybe we can talk a little bit more when we finish this little round and we've, we've talked to Bjorn. Maybe we mm. can talk a little bit about the whole genre in general, because I think it's quite interesting, the, the history and each game innovating over the last and yeah. So, Bjorn, I know you, well, you have played Eye of the Beholder 2, as you mentioned in the intro, but... Yeah, so, um, yeah, I've played them both. I actually didn't finish Eye of the Beholder 2 until this, or until the month that we played this game. But yeah, I definitely played Eye of the Beholder 1, and I was trying to remember recently exactly when I played it, but it would have been either sort of towards the end of high school or the start of uni, so sort of somewhere early 2000s. Hmm. Why did you decide to pick up... Um, I mean, that is not around the time this game came out. <laughs> no. So the reason was I I sent in some scans for the for the website of a review of Eye of the Boulder 2 from PC Format. Um, so that's a magazine I'd had since I was a kid. My uncle gave that to me. And I just remember flicking through the pages and I got onto that review and I just sort of really fell in love with it. I just loved the, just the atmosphere and the colors and, and all that. And I'd, and I'd sort of wanted to play it ever since. Um, but obviously at that time it was sort of, we didn't have the internet, so I had no real way to get it. It was sort of just old enough that it wasn't in stores anymore. Hmm. And so I spent years and years just, just really wishing I could play it. And so I started with Eye of the Beholder 1 when I finally got a hold of it. And then <laughs> when I started playing Eye of the Beholder 2, uh, it had the copy protection and I didn't, mm. didn't have access to a manual. Right. Uh, and so I didn't get very far <laughs> until just recently. Wow. Mm. So for you, it was really the pursuit of Eye of the Beholder 2. Yes. Yeah. Took quite some years. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a legit copy now or? Uh, not an original copy, but I do I do own it on GOG. Right. Yeah, but there's no boxed copy in your on your shelf. No, unfortunately not. I imagine Richard does have one though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of goes without saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, have we ever done a game, Richard, that you didn't have a boxed copy of? 
Um, not one I've been on the. Uh, I don't actually. I didn't have that Hugo. That was my first episode. I don't know if there is a box copy of that. That Hugo 3D. I don't. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But yeah, amazing. So yeah, I mean, uh, for years in the pursuit of this game, and you only had the magazine review at first. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> was it anything like the what you thought it would be when you finally got to play it? Uh, it was in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, Certainly the first few levels in the catacombs, um, I, I thought it didn't sort of get the, the atmosphere that I, that I really liked uh, as you got along further in the game. But, yeah, I, I definitely really liked the first few levels of it, absolutely. And what was it about it that seemed so appealing? Like, was it the fantasy setting or the, you know, the danger of the dungeons? And um, yeah, a little, a little bit of. I, I, I was really into fantasy, sort of at that age and sort of my late or mid-teen years, mm. when I was reading that review, and so that was definitely a big part of it. And yeah, just, just generally the way they did the colours and the textures and and the way the review was written and everything. It, I just yeah, just got re- got this real sort of. Oh, I really have to play this game, and that that possibly was what. Uh, the fact that I that I really wanted to, but I couldn't, it kind of just amplified it <laughs> for, for so many years, just kept thinking about this game. <laughs> yeah. Probably just read Tolkien or something. Yes, I definitely read a lot of Tolkien and and other fantasy novels and things like that. Yeah, it was a hmm. yeah, big part of my teen years. I, I'd say very quite typical for well, the sort of nerds that we all are. <laughs> a regular nerd career. Yes. <laughs> yeah, just the, the the normal path you've taken. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's good. So did you did you get to play any other uh, games in this genre? Um, as far as dungeon crawlers, not, not as much at that time. I definitely played a lot of Ultima and sort of just dabbled around in other, other games like that sort of your more traditional top-down RPGs. It's probably only recently that I've played a few more actual proper dungeon crawlers and then <laughs> even they are on the mobile, actually, so ah. uh, not not even DOS games. Right. So old ones emulated or just new ones? Uh, new ones, but retro-style new ones. You know, that's all the rage. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. Been, you're doing a lot of that. Although now that... Uh, I'm looking here, as I see Might and Magic mentioned. Um, another thing that probably contributed to my sort of love of this sort of thing was I had a a non-playable demo of Might and Magic, I think it was three, <laughs> on oh. our first 386 computer. And I lo- used to love watching that and and all the atmosphere of that as well. Yeah, a non-playable one. So yeah, <laughs> essentially slides or just like a... Like it played for you, like a demo? Uh... Yeah, it played for you and it sort of just uh, skipped from scene to scene. It sort of did, did a few moves, fought a monster here, hmm. fought a monster there, and then skipped to another scene and did a bit of that. Wow, like, yeah, like a store demo. Yeah, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what it was intended for originally, yeah. Hmm. That's amazing but, to have that at home. <laughs> yeah, I don't <laughs> just know. Just sit and watch. <laughs> yeah, it came preloaded on our computer when when we got it. Um, I don't know where <laughs> where that came from, but yeah, it was fun to watch anyway. Yeah. A little off topic, but I'm a little worried about ever playing Might Magic Three because I feel like that probably won't <laughs> live up to the <laughs> live up to the demo that I watched. 
Uh, I don't know. I think Might and Magic is a, a fondly remembered series. It's it's definitely one of the greats because, well, that's what I alluded to earlier. This this, this game, I have, I have the Beholder, fits into a whole tradition almost. Um, I think Richard already called them blobbers. I think blobbers is nowadays the term that that's used to describe these games, which I think is an American term maybe used in magazines and kind of caught on. I don't know. And we were talking quickly about it before the show started, but I mean, this is a weird term, right? Blobber. But uh, apparently it has to do with how the party members blob together. So instead of controlling them individually, you control them as one big blob. So yeah, you just go forward and the whole party goes forward. I think this is where the term came from. So that means Eye of the Beholder is a first person real-time blobber, (laughs) I guess. A lot of these games are first person. That's like the typical perspective where you see the the straight lines in front of you going into the distance for the dungeon and you can rotate and move around in a, in a grid, typically. And I think it was you man, also mentioning this game, Richard, uh, Dungeon Master. Apparently, Eye of the Beholder is a lot like Dungeon Master, which is an older game. It's from 87. Yeah, yeah. They're, I mean, they're very similar. I don't know enough about the genre to say quite what Dungeon... It's the first one I saw that went full screen, full colour graphics, all real... It might have been the first real-time blobber for all I know. That's possible. Mm-hmm. But the, the gameplay is... It's very much... They've definitely, they've definitely seen Dungeon Master, but the guys who made Eye of the Beholder put it that way. Yeah, I've been reading some articles about this, and, well, some some are a bit shocked how similar this game actually is to Dungeon Master. The odd thing is, they, t- they took so long porting Dungeon Master to the PC that it, I don't think it was, it must have been a couple of years later, even after Eye of the Beholder. So mm-hmm. it was kind of old news by the time it got to the PC. Yeah, I think the studio uh, responsible for Dungeon Master, FTL, they are kind of known for being. Um, well, I, I saw one reviewer describing them as uh, having a relaxed attitude to developing games. <laughs> <laughs> Moby Games claims the DOS version of Dungeon Master was released a year after um, Eye of the Beholder. Yeah, but that's kind of amazing because the the, the original version came out in 87. Mm-hmm. Eye of the Beholder is from 91. So if the DOS port followed in 92, that took them five years to port this game. But I think the real thing pointing in their relaxed attitude is uh, the sequel that eventually came out, Dungeon Master 2. But I think it wasn't until, let me look it up. Yeah, 1995. I mean, nowadays that's not so shocking, isn't it? But back then, taking eight years to come up with a sequel is kind of insane. (laughs) Still for the Amiga, by the way. So that's also kind of amazing to release an Amiga game in 95. (laughs) (laughs) It did come out on DOS. I remember Mm. one of my housemates coming in with it when I was at uni. He played the original on his Amiga or whatever. He was was very disappointed with the sequel is all I can remember. I have not played these games, but what I've read and gathered is that it's just very similar to the original and well, if you if you look at the development of the whole gaming ecosystem between '87 and '95, well, a lot happened. Mm. So it's kind of hard to keep up with that, to be honest. In a single game, it's a big jump. Like what people's expectations were between '87 and '95. <laughs> well, that's quite a, a gap to bridge. 
I read that Dungeon Master introduced the paper doll interface. Mm. So where you get your guy and then you can attach items to slots around them for their hands and their feet and, you know, which became kind of a staple for the genre. Yeah, not, not only for the dungeon crawler genre, right? No. I mean, you do that in every RPG nowadays, even in some um, FPS. So Yeah, so that's uh, that's a big step up. I don't know, maybe we should look at Dungeon Master at one point. Although, actually, Dungeon Master is also, well, in a, in a long tradition of these kind of dungeon crawling games. Uh, Might and Magic was already mentioned, which is a series starting in 86. But another famous one is The Bard's Tale from 85. And the Ultima series, of course, starting in 81, spawning lots of games. And it has a fair bit of this uh, dungeon crawling action. And I think the original one coming up with this is Wizardry. Um, well, there was, uh, there was a Calabeth before Ultima, mm. which so uh, I, I mean it's basically that was there was a very very simple game, just sort of line drawing dungeon. But all right, so I think that might have been the first sort of it, it was sort you had you still had an over, overworld that was two D. Mm-hmm. So well, but yeah, it might, that might have been the first RPG that was first person. However, ah yeah, you're right. This is from '79. That's amazing. What's it called? A a Calabeth? A Calabeth, yeah. It's it's it's, it's ripped off a of Tolkien. It's, it's... <laughs> Isn't that the name of the spider or something? No. Oh. A, a Calabeth is the story of the downfall of Numenor. Oh, I'm not. Basically, what uh, Rings of Power is about. Ah, the new Amazon show. Yes. Has anyone watched it? I have. Yeah, yeah. Is it any good? I like it. It's possible. <laughs> I would say. Did they put a billion dollars into it? It's not really true to the to the books but it's 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 not a bad show no if you're if you're a really big Tolkien nerd I can understand you hating it to be quite honest but Mm. if you if you can get past that it's passable all right um I'm looking at a screenshot of this Calabeth game it's it's all lines it's really simple but it's still it has the 3d perspective yeah, that's mm. kind of impressive for seventy nine, to be honest. Yeah, it was. It was only done as a sort of, as a sort of project in his own time. Originally, it wasn't intended to be sold. It's what got Gary into the industry. Exactly. So yeah, this has been going on for a long time, and of course, they are sort of all adaptations of pen and paper games. I would say that's where the idea came from. Anyway, is my impression. So that means stuff like. Dungeons and Dragons, right? I mean, there's tons of different systems and different games, but it seems apt to focus on Dungeons and Dragons now because actually IFD Beholder is an official Advanced Dungeons and Dragons game, like with a license and everything. So that's basically computer versions of this is what the genre is, I would say. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should move on to the voice message we got, Florian. Yes, we received one voice message this time. From Peter, a.k.a. Pointer, who has sent in the following. Hey, those Game Club. This is Peter, or Pointer, on the forums. So back in the 90s, I only played Eye of the Beholder briefly. My first attempt at playing it now ended exactly the same. The dungeon rooms and corridors all look the same, and the map design is very maze-like. Even the old-school approach of drawing your own map doesn't always work. In short... I got lost. Fortunately, now we have the amazing All-Seeing Eye extension. This auto-map makes the game much more approachable. On my second try, 
using this extension, I was able to finish the game. So what do I think? The game has some rough edges. Certain things are tedious. For example, when using long-range weapons, you'll have to repeatedly pick up every single projectile. And the food system is pretty much pointless, and I say that as someone who loves survival. Then there's the spiders, which attack with deadly poison, and which you'll find before having the necessary healing spell or potions, pretty much forcing you to save scum. There are no shops, no trading of any kind, and the monsters only drop useless items. There are magic items to be found, but you can only identify them close to the end of the game, and even then it's not obvious how to do it. That's probably the biggest issue, because you can do a lot in this game, but you're not told how, even in the menu or clue book. All that said, once I got into the game and started making progress, it was fun. There is variety in both the monsters and the puzzles, and the fights are a combination of RPG-like strategy with real-time action, so the core gameplay loop actually works well. In conclusion, I had fun with the game, but I still prefer more player-friendly RPGs, like Might and Magic 3. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for this great message. Yeah, that was perfect. Picks up lots of the complaints that also magazines had back in the day. So I guess we'll talk about that when we come to the reviews part. Mm -hmm. But that was a really all-encompassing uh, voice message going over the whole thing. Well done. Thanks, Thanks Peter. Oh, we don't need to do a podcast now. Exactly. <laughs> That's like the whole thing wrapped up now. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> See you all next time. Bye. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. You know, and he can do it in under two minutes, what we will probably need two hours for. <laughs> mm, yeah. We're not efficient, are we? <laughs> I think maybe we should start with the premise. I mean, the, uh, there is a story. I'm not exactly sold on how relevant any of this is while actually playing the game but you know it's there it's in the manual as well i also like how in the manual you've got a really detailed map of the city and then uh, a map of the environment around the city and a whole hive of backstory about what's going on in the city and things like mm -hmm. that. And then mm -hmm. all of that's completely irrelevant and forgotten because you're in a dungeon. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. It's Well, I, I guess they had this official license, so they had access to a lot of stuff and also maybe were obliged to use some of it, you know, to really tie into the... Um, What's it called again? It's it's one of those... Forgotten realms. Exactly. So I guess they felt compelled to use some of that lore. Yeah, I'm not entirely convinced if it's relevant at all while playing the game. But, you know, let's let's get into it anyway. I think that's, that's typical for pen and paper role-playing games as well. You get mm. this rule book and, and each book has, has a bit of lore and it's just how it, how it works, right? Yeah, exactly. So just to get you into the, into the right vibe and mindset. Um, I'm sure you have the, the, the manual, like the physical copy, Richard. Um, yeah, I don't know if I actually read it, uh, to be honest, but I have got it. <laughs> well, I looked at a PDF online of it, um, and it opens with a letter which kind of sets the scene and, and explains the premise. Uh, there are two letters, actually. Uh, the first one is a letter from your trusted friend, Kelvin, addressed to... Oh, God, I have to say this. Pierre Garon? I don't know. Pierre Garon? 
it's I'm not even sure who this character exactly is. Maybe maybe the leader of the of the town or something. I don't know. But anyway, there's a letter explaining there is a great evil, an evil named Xanatar. Well, your trusted friend Kelvin explains they have looked everywhere for this evil but cannot find it. And there are rumors going around of assassins in Waterdeep, which seems to be this the main city of the land of Tyr. Uh, so yeah, there's grave concern and that's the reason he's writing this letter. And he suggests to this uh, Pierre Garon that he should hire some adventurers and investigate this evil. And he also hints that maybe the source is closer to him than he thinks, like they've overlooked something. So they quickly get the idea to actually go under the city of Waterdeep into the sewers, into the underground passages and yeah, check that out. Uh, And then the other letter in the manual next to it is actually this commission, a letter of Mark written by... I, I suppose this Pierre Garon leader, well, anyway, some high up figure commissioning an adventurer or a group of adventurers to go down. Like it allows the holder of the documents to enter the passages and, and investigate the evil and destroy it if they can. Yeah, that kind of like what you mentioned, Bjorn, that you go under, that's, that's, that's sort of obvious from these documents that you should go investigate the underneath passages of Waterdeep. That's where the whole game is set, right? Yep. And then the other clue is from the game's opening intro cinematic, which I thought was quite nice, actually. I've seen worse things. I thought it was quite cinematic and and gripping, so it's fairly basic. I mean, it's just, it shows more or less what follows. Like the the adventures enter the, um, the city council and they are told to go down. But there's also this evil, like this crystal ball, right? So there's someone looking from a distance and you get the idea that there's some evil plot going on, watching your party go in under the the city. And eventually what happens is that the door is closed and the entrance collapses. And then the evil also says something like, oh, we've got them or something. So it was all an evil plot to capture you under there, it seems. And that's more or less when the game starts. You're now stuck underneath and you can't go out the only way forward is further down. Well, it's kind of odd that it seems an evil plot, but it turns out to be also just true. I mean, if you go down, you actually find this Xanatar at the end of the dungeon. So I don't know what the plot actually is. I mean, <laughs> I've tricked you into entering my lair. Okay, that's not a trick. That's just... <laughs> What I was trying to do in the first place. Yeah, it's a bit, okay. Oh, you've fallen into the trap of entering my house. Okay, and killing me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. well, I should have collapsed the entrance before you got in, really. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't have been able to go in and beat him. So. That's, that would have been a lot more clever, actually. But then that would not have been a game, so. I also hmm. thought it... I always find it interesting. It's not just this game. It's all all these types of games, usually these dungeon crawlers. Got this massive dwarven city and then an elf city and all these massive catacombs. But for some reason, there's only one entrance into all of this. 
And it's mm-hmm. just this tiny little passage in the sewers. So mm-hmm. just imagine all these like dwarf kings. Are, you have to go through the sewers first before you get to the city. <laughs> I was going to say, it's not how many of these RPGs, mate, you go into a sewer is the first thing you have to do. <laughs> yeah. All right. So role-playing a sewage inspector or whatever. <laughs> I think it's, it's implied that the inhabitants of this dungeon don't ever really go out. Like the dwarves that are, you know, somewhere halfway, they don't leave through the sewer, is my impression. They just don't leave at all. They just live there and are somehow self-sufficient. I don't know. Because you also don't encounter a lot of foot traffic as you're going down. So it's not, you know, it's it's quite bare. So it's it's sort of a surprise when you encounter, you know, the dwarven city or other people living down there. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I suppose you don't think about it too much is, is no the, is the way. <laughs> you can't question it yeah and you're right the manual has a lot of extra backstory and a map and and things i suppose it's also just an advert uh, an advertisement to get people to play dungeons and dragons mm. if they go oh there's all this other stuff that i can find out i'll better buy the big rule book and all this stuff definitely definitely so uh onto the game itself then the start of the game is creating a party, very typical for a D&D game. And also actually the, well, the, the party creation, I think follows exactly the actual D&D character creation stuff. I mean, I don't have a ton of experience with this, but that's the feeling I get anyway. I think you also need to actually know some AD&D rules in order to make a proper party because nothing is explained. Mm. You just get the um, character stats and you don't know 16 SDR. Is this good for, I don't know, a paladin? Is is it bad for uh, for a cleric? It's, it's just, you don't know what, what you do. Mm-hmm. So, and there's no explanation anywhere. There's, isn't there there's a bit of guidance in the manual, isn't there? I think the manual explains it a bit. Yeah. But also there's no, uh, there are no limitations to the points you can assign. So, you can't just max out. Yeah, well, it's got like a pretend dice roll, isn't it? Mm. So you can keep rolling that, or you can just forget about that and just max everything <laughs> out, which is which I'll, which is what I did. I'll confess. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting because it makes it easier, I suppose, if you enter the dungeon with a maxed out party. But well, it's sort of self-imposed, so I think I feel it's okay. You can also not do that. I, I think the idea is that. If you have an existing D&D party from elsewhere, that you can enter it into the game. I think that's what they intended with this. You can remake actual characters that you have on paper already or from other games, maybe. Mm -hmm. I would say it's all from the uh, official D&D stuff, but it's also very Tolkien-esque in its setup. It's very... I don't know how typical this was back then, but for na- to me now, it seems very typical fantasy stuff. Like you have the mm. humans and the elves and the dwarves and the gnomes and the halflings, and they can be fighters or mages or rangers or thieves. It's all, it's kind of what you expect from a fantasy RPG game. I, I think maybe the only thing that's, well, it's a well-known thing, but it's maybe not in every other game is the alignment stuff, like the lawful or chaotic, good, evil. That doesn't play a role in every other game, but I don't know how much of a role it plays in this one, to be honest. But I do know you 
for example, you can't have a paladin in a party with anybody that's evil. Mm -hmm. Because paladins only hang out with good people. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, As far as I know, that's the only thing it really does. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't. I, was, I think the sequel. I think I think it was the sequel. There's a bit where you could rob graves, and some of your party characters weren't up for that if you had a good party. <laughs> yeah, that's I think that's the only thing I ran into. I think. Yeah, I think the alignment system is more for the actual role play, which yeah. is interestingly the one part that's missing, and I have to be holding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you do. Uh, well, as you go down the dungeons, you do meet some friendlies as well, uh, besides monsters. And they, well, they sometimes request your help and you can either hear them out or you can decline. But this doesn't tie into the alignment system at all, does it? So, I mean, you can be evil and still help them or the other way around. Mm. I don't know. I don't know what it actually does, but it's there. Does it maybe affect what spells, for example... If you if you have an evil wizard uh, versus a good wizard, I wonder if it affects what spells you start with and what spells you can learn. Well, no, no, you just learn the spells from scrolls that you find. But yeah, I do know you start off with a, a set of spells that you can choose from, so it might affect that as well. Maybe I, I could not tell you. Maybe yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I mean, there's there's face pictures for each of the characters, which also. I mean, it's really fun and it it helps to recognize them, but it also doesn't really do anything, does it? It's just, it's just fun. And there's a lot of these face pictures and they're not all in the same style either. So it's kind of weird how you can mix and match different types of portraits. It also seems, it almost seems like it's not one set. It's like three or four sets combined or, I don't know if maybe they got this from the D&D people, or did they make this themselves? I don't know. It looks, like if you've seen other Westwood games, it looks, uh, a lot of them look like the style of their in-house artists. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure about all of them, mm-hmm. but you know, like I'd say, yeah, a few of the other Westwood games, it's definitely got that very similar hand-painted style to them. Yeah, and some some faces do match. I mean, it's not it's not terrible at all. I was just surprised that in a lot of these games, it's very clear that that it's one portrait and that everything is just a variation on it. But that's not really the case here. It's mm. every face is its own sort of thing. There's monochrome faces, for example. I mean, there's one guy who's all red. Some are looking directly at the camera, while some others are a little bit to the side or more to the side. It's all, yeah, it's all varied, very varied set. And a lot of pictures as well. Mm. That's fun. It doesn't really do anything, but (laughs) it's fun. It's nice that it's there. That's it, really. I mean, uh, you choose a a race, human, dwarf, halfling, elf. You choose a class, fighter, ranger, mage, cleric, thief. There's some combinations as well, which is interesting. So you can be, I don't know, a, a thief, cleric, or a fighter, mage, or I don't know. This. It, it kind of depends on your race, I think, which combinations are possible, which classes are possible. So there's, there's some logic there, but yeah. Uh, and then you can assign stats. It's all the basic stats, you know, strength, intelligence, wisdom, dexterity, constitution, charisma. You get an armor class, which is calculated from your stats and hit points. And you can set a level. Seems odd that you can set your own level, but 
well, there you go. Makes sense when you think that it's meant to mimic an existing party. Mm. Exactly. I was surprised, you know, when I when I started this game and knew nothing about it. It's just, what level do you want to be? It's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's un uncommon at least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and also, you always start with a party of four, which is, um, well, some of these games are more free in that you can start with just one or two if you want. But this game, you can't. You have to create four party members. But you can recruit more people later on, right? I think it's up to six, maybe? Yeah, I think you can get two, yeah six in total uh, party size. But yeah, you can drop party members at any time. And so you can really... With the amount of characters you can pick up through through the game, you could really start with a completely different party to what you finish with. You could drop all four of your characters and fill fill the spots with characters you find along the way. Yeah, yeah. There's there's multiple ways to to acquire more party members. Um, sometimes people just want to join you, but you can also resurrect people from skeletons and stuff like that. So sometimes people just join you. Because you're, you're aiding them in a quest and they're sending like someone like, oh yeah, take this guy from our group to help you with this quest, something like that. So, yeah. right. I feel I'm just talking. I mean, <laughs> someone else can also talk. <laughs> Who has something to say about, I don't know, moving around is the next bullet. <laughs> how, how does moving around work in this game? Badly. <laughs> Yeah, badly, yes, because it's it it's really mechanics that are better suited to turn based, and then they mm -hmm. whack this real time thing over it, and so you get situations where you can throw a rock and then run into the rock and have it hit you in the back of the head. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And you just sort of run rings around the bad guys, and just just really, and it even says in the manual that you're supposed to abuse the the system that you're supposed to run backwards and forwards and and hit and hit the bad guys and move away and, mm -hmm. and take it yeah because you can hit the button as fast as you want to move but the the baddies are sort of bound to move at a certain speed yeah it's very obviously internally still turn based right mm. it just there's a grid system and there's no placement between the grid points so the enemies go from from slot to slot from from square to square tile to tile yep and these tiles are quite large so it's really a jump like yeah it's not small increments they really they're in front of you and then they're to the side all of a sudden there's nothing in between mm. I also had some issues keeping track of where I went actually because I know that it's a technical limitation but would have been really nice if there was one intermediate frame or something when you move from one yeah. tile to the next so that you know mm -hmm. how you have turned or moved mm -hmm. because I've lost uh, my heading so many times. Yeah, but, <laughs> but yeah. even that, there's, there's puzzles that are based around that where they, they'll, they'll tr teleport you without, you know, uh, without telling you or t spin you around 180 degrees or something. And the only way to tell is by watching, watching your compass down the bottom. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually based on that fact that there's no intermediate frames. Otherwise you'd notice these things happening. Yeah. Some of the some of the later games did actually have the intermediate frames, like Lanzalore, which is Westwood as well. It's sort of 
does a sort of zoom when you move forward and pans to the left and right. So it was something that came in with like later on in the genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's re- very obvious that this still has the turn-based roots, but they they try to work in a real-time system. Although, well, I, I think especially in the combat, you can just mash the fight button, but there's a timeout on it, so you you can't keep spamming attacks, which makes it all still feel turn-based to me. Like you're still you're doing a fight turn and then waiting until it's your turn again. Yes, it's it's completely like done. It's exactly like Dungeon Master is the <laughs> combat in this. It's there's a, there's a sort of rhythm to it. You have to like you have to find a like four by four square, get a hit in, back off, so they're not you're not in contact, and they just keep going round and round this square, mm-hmm. <laughs> and waiting for your timeout to come back, nip in, get a hit in, nip, nip off to the other corner. Yeah, again. exactly. It's a dance, um, and that's for the melee combat. There's a party of four and they're in a little square. So there's it's two by two and only the front two party members can actually do a melee attack. At first I was sort of annoyed about, but later you start to realize that if you had to mash these four buttons, it would be even harder to control maybe. Mm. The two guys behind, they can do ranged attacks or magic. So yeah, you still have to spam a lot of buttons. <laughs> And pick up your, as, as I think Peter mentioned in the voice message, you have to pick up your um, projectiles, each yeah. one individually, and put it back into the um, appropriate character's inventory. Yes. Yes, that is a bit tedious. Um, Could be worse. There, there is a thing for automatically like picking up more ammo, isn't there? But in the inventory. Is there? So you don't have- I have no idea. Yeah. Did we all just waste hours when, that we didn't have to by... <laughs> I clicked on the little arrow and then clicked on the little guy and the infantry No, no, opened. no, you, still, you, still, you, have to, you have to pick it up after you've thrown it, but you can have, like, if you've thrown one, another one will pop into its place if you have it in the right slot. Oh, yes, yeah. Oh, yeah that, that works. Yeah. So at least you're not having to do that. So no, it could have been no, worse. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Even worse if you have um, like like a good dagger and a bad dagger, or and a couple of bad ones, and you want to have one specific character to get the good one again, then you're clicking yep. through all of them because they look very much alike, and then yep. oh, this is yep. the good one. I've given it to the wrong <laughs> character. Oh uh, yes. I think when you're in the middle of a fight, you kind of have to forget about the details and just you know mash, ma- throw everything at them. That's right. And then pick up things later, and you know once everyone's dead, then you can gather your thoughts and and split all the items over the party in a sensible way. But in the middle of the fight, that's not really, I don't know. That's how I approach it anyway. It's just blind panic. Just click everything. (laughs) Just don't cast that. What is it? The ice storm spell. Uh, I think it's that one mm-hmm. because it injures all your party as well. If the if the if the baddies are right in front of you, it's like a big explosion. Mm. It gets everybody. So don't panic and use that one. Yeah. Isn't it true that the magic, it's not just targeted at the enemies? I think that's true for all the spells. Yeah, it's it's this one in particular, though. Like, um, like fireballs will hit more, multiple enemies at once. But um, yeah, I, I think it's the ice storm spell. If the, if the enemy's right in front of you and it hits them, it'll hit all of your party as well. Yeah. Right, rather than like, yeah. That's really dangerous, yeah. I must say that I didn't focus too much on the magic, to be honest, because, well, this is the first of this type of game that I ever played. I didn't even know how to do an attack at first. I was just completely lost. And and also just rotating. Apparently, 
it's assumed that you play with the numpad, but I mean, I don't have a numpad on my laptop, so I can even figure out how to rotate at first. So <laughs> yeah, I, I, the magic was uh, something I only looked at later on. In the beginning, I was just fighting my way through it and actually it worked out all right, surprisingly well, to be honest. Were you having to move around with the mouse all the time? Well, only for rotating. So I could go forward okay, okay, with the, with the okay. forward, but there was no, because if you, if you press right, you strafe right. Yeah, yeah. That sound, sounds tricky from, uh, without having tried it, is all I'm thinking. I was walking up the walls and then strafing right and moving forward again until I had to rotate. And then I picked up the mouse and clicked the rotate button and. One of the hated mechanics in Dungeon Master was that if you walked into a wall, you took damage. I'm thinking <laughs> you should be glad you weren't playing that like Oh, that. my God. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, we, we've had that recently, right? That'll be yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little big adventure, yeah. Yeah, that's... Oh, my God. Yeah, so in a way, this game is more accessible. I think that's generally the consensus that this game is also... just a bit easier, a little, little less grating, a little less difficult, although... I think the, the the real difficulty, like Peter said also in his voice message, is just not getting lost. You can easily get lost because there's also, there's also teleportation and stuff. You can randomly end up somewhere and not yeah. realize. Like what? Yeah. I, was, I think I was mentioning that earlier where it'll just... Yeah, with the compass. Yeah, exactly. But um, I think that's one thing that either Polder 2 did a bit better. Every sort of area that you were in felt like its own place. and And like... Yeah, in the catacombs, there was a bit that was the barracks and there was a bit that's the jail and this and that, and, and it felt like you were in all these different places. Whereas, yeah, in either Beholder 1, it was all just, just mazes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. What is kind of interesting is that the magic stuff um, is split between two classes. There's a mage and a cleric, and they have a different, well, tech tree, I'm going to say. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's fun. That, it just means there's a lot of spells and they have different levels and yeah, they're unique. I, I think there is some overlap, but it's it's quite small, actually. It's just m maybe a handful of spells are available to both. The, the mage is more combat spells, fireballs and stuff, and the cleric is more healing spells and shield and late. And also spawning food, by the way, kind of important. I think Peter also said that in his voice message that the food system is not particularly relevant. Why do you think he said that? Because there's so much food in the dungeon. All it all it is is just for you to remember to keep an eye on the food meter and then just feed everyone whenever they get low. And then as soon as you have the make food spell, all that's wasted anyway. You may as well throw your food at, <laughs> down a pit or something. Yeah, it seems like a good idea maybe when they introduce stuff like this. Like, oh yeah, that will that'll give it an extra edge, but actually... Mm. It's pretty standard stuff for RPGs. Mm. I think they feel like they have to put that in. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe they didn't even think too much about it. Like, oh yeah, this is a given, but then... They had it in, they were definitely in Dungeon Master again, but it was a bit, the food was a bit shorter mm -hmm. on that. So you could definitely run out if you didn't, if you took too much time. Right. So food is the, is the maybe the easy bar to replenish. The, the other bar that's constantly taking up your attention is the health bar, the hit points bar. I just camped a lot. I don't know if, if that's the way to play it, but 
you can you can set up a camp and and then peep your party members heal. I don't know if there's a penalty to that. I'm not that I'm aware of, yeah. My strategy was just to camp after each battle <laughs> and just be be at full health all times. I don't know yeah. if there's a downside to that. but Are you ever interrupted by random monsters when you're camping? I don't think so. No. I think I had it once. Oh, so it does happen. Yeah, no, you definitely can be. It won't let you rest at all if there's one too near. Yes. Yeah. So you actually have to clear the area, but... I don't know. I found this a quite straightforward way to play it. But then you rest for days or weeks even. Yeah, but I don't... How injured your party is. Well, that's why I wonder if there's some kind of downside. But nobody's keeping track of time anyway, so... (laughs) Uh, You're spending weeks just going from one square to another. Yeah, you got a party of octogenarians by the time (laughs) you get to the end, yeah. And another thing the camping stuff is great for is to cure uh, poison or, or... You know, when someone is, I don't know, has a status change. Poison is a bit difficult. I think until you get the right spells, it can be quite dangerous to rest when you're poisoned because your party member will just get weaker and weaker and then die Mm -hmm. until, yeah, you get the cure poison spell. Yeah. And camping doesn't help with that. It doesn't cure the poison automatically. No, no. It'll do. I I think it'll cure... As you're saying, like uh, when you're um, paralyzed or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So don't get poisoned. That's that's the tip. <laughs> <laughs> Life hack. Life hack. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I don't think you can get poisoned early on. I think that's more of a later thing. Although, I don't know. I don't know when it's introduced. But maybe it's fun to go over the structure of the game a little bit because you start out in the sewers, as mentioned, and Mm-hmm. The monsters, they get increasingly difficult and also... The, the, I think it's it's actually... It's 12 levels in total, the whole game. But it's sort of divided into four sections or worlds. So, yeah, the sewer world is the first one. Um, five, I think. Oh, really? I think so, yeah. So, sewer, the, the um, dwarven halls, the dark elves... Uh, I don't know what you call it, where the mind flayers are with all the moss on the walls. And then the last one is... The lair. Although that's only one one level, really. Mm. Yeah, so that's Xanathar's lair. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think what they've done is to have a set of monsters on each level. Yeah, or even in in certain places, like there'll be certain monsters you can only find in a certain part of a certain level, I think. Mm. like I, I feel like the spiders... You, you can't just run into them anywhere. Uh, you have to be sort of in the periphery of that level to run into them. Yeah, exactly. Ah, I found a manual now. Yeah, it starts with the things like the kobolds and the, what's the snake thing? The giant leech. And then it goes more into the undead stuff. And then later on you find the dwarves and you get the big spiders and the, the weird fish-like guys. And, uh, oh, the Kenkus, those with the, um, is that with the bird? Yeah. Who have a, a, a bird face? Mm-hmm. The giant spiders are really scary. There's really weird ones, like ones that's just a blob with an eye in the middle and, and, and arms. That sounds like the Beholder almost, doesn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, the Beholder itself is lo- lots of eyes. 
Yeah, in the second one you get, I think they're called spores or something, and and it's sort of implied that they've evolved to look like a beholder to so that no one would bother them. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> and then yeah, then but they're pretty pretty harmless unless you you hit them up close and then they explode and do damage. Oh, uh, that's great. Mm. Yeah, the be- it's interesting that the beholder. That's from the title, right? Like Eye of the Beholder. The beholder is the and boss, like this uh, Xanatar guy is is a beholder, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And he's just, yeah, hiding at the end of the game and you defeat him and, well, that's that's the whole game. So, yeah, I, I mean, the, the levels that you mentioned, uh, Bjorn, they're, they're, well, you can mostly tell from the color of the walls. Like, there's different textures. That's how you can tell you're progressing, which I, it's better than all gray all the way, I suppose. Yeah. You know, I mean, I can see how this game is um, is an important step in the evolution of the blobber genre. But at the same time, I can't help but feel that it's all it's all what you would sort of expect from a fantasy RPG dungeon crawler. It's just what really sets it apart. But what is really unique about this? I'm not sure. License. <laughs> the, the license. Yeah. The license. Yeah, true. But um, we'll get to it. But. For me, at least, I really like the graphics, more so in number two again. Mm. But, um, yeah, we'll get to that a little bit later, but just, just the hand-drawn graphics. like And, and you are mentioning before the, the character portraits, they all look really great as well. Um, I think that and the atmosphere, yeah, I think that's what sort of sets it apart for me at least. Yeah. Yeah, it's really beautiful, especially if you compare it, for example, to Dungeon Master 2 which looks better than the first one, but still doesn't come close to Eye of the Beholder. And and I suppose that's the Westwood touch. Mm. Mm-hmm. These guys know what they're doing. Is that it really? Is it just the graphical fidelity that made this game so beloved? I can see that. But in, in terms of content, it feels it's all just what you would expect from a fantasy RPG game. Yeah, it might, I mean, it might have been the first in... Full all the VGI graphics on the PC, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah, quite possible. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's it. Is there is there really much in terms of story? I mean, I remember that you, uh, Richard, said on the forums that you played through the whole game in like two hours. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just felt like I was stumped. I mean, I cheated to Blazers with the <laughs> maximum stats of all seeing eye that was mentioned in the message by Peter. Oh, yeah. To do all my mapping. But I, I felt like I was just sort of stumbling around these mazes and you'd sort of get halfway through one and you'd like fall through a pit or go find some stairs. So I was sort of thinking, oh, I'll come back and have a look at that later. Mm hmm. And then I can sort of carry on like this and just suddenly find I'm fight, fighting the builder at the end. <laughs> I know when I wasn't expecting wow. it. But there's precious little story along the way. I think I found one quest to rescue someone. I think it was, did the dwarves give yeah. you a quest to find and rescue yeah. someone? But I, ne- but I never actually found the, the, where they were. So I missed that out altogether. I was saying, yeah, it's definitely a game you can... Yeah, I, I made sure this time around that I yeah just tried to uh, do every little thing. And yeah, there's a few other things. There's there's this sort of evil wizard guy as well that has some backstory that he's evil, but he wants to he wants you. I can't remember what it is. He wants to defeat Xanathar himself or something, and then take over Xanathar's plans. But you just sort of kill him. <laughs> and then I okay. know uh, there's yeah there's the uh, the dwarf prince that was that was kidnapped, and there's a few other 
characters and bits and pieces. They're, they're kind of just window dressing, though. It doesn't really affect the story in a big way. Mm-hmm. The sequel did it an awful lot better. Mm. You felt like there was a story going on, and every now, I mean, you felt like you were in places. You knew what your tasks were. Yeah. You go back and forth between them, and you get little cutscenes every now and then to yeah. sort of remind you of what was going on. It just they didn't really get that quite right in this first one. No. That's interesting. They've added cutscenes. There's there's none of that in this game, I feel. It's just going level from level to level until you've beaten it. I don't think there's even a cutscene at the end. There's just the intro cinematic. Ah, right. Well, that yeah, depends. That What happened there was they were too tight to put an extra disc in on the PC version, so the cutscene you got at the end of the Amiga original wasn't included. What? So you just get a bit of text. Yeah, that's right. What? Because they didn't want... <laughs> We've been robbed. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, if you want the ending, you have to go and watch it on YouTube. Oh, my so. God. All right. I didn't actually make it all the way to the end. I think I got somewhere halfway. I got to the Dwarven City and sort of ran out of steam. But I did watch a playthrough on on, uh, YouTube. But it was a playthrough of the DOS version. And yeah, it just ended with a text box like, congratulations, uh, you beat the Beholder and uh, the world lives happily ever after on. Bye. And that's that's the the end of the game. DOS games love doing that sometimes, didn't they? Defeat the boss and then says back to DOS prompt. Yes. You win the game. Yeah, that's congratulations. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. Oh. So okay. So there is an ending cinematic, which uh makes me feel better that it at least exists because yeah. All right. <laughs> we'll have to check that out. And this um this eye of the beholder, um, no, the all-seeing eye, I mean, tool was mentioned now twice. So maybe it's good to m- dive into that a little bit because it has to do with the auto map right or actually the lack of auto map that's yeah there is no auto map in the game i think the the idea is that you do a map yourself on paper while playing the game that's like a staple of this genre is that you map it all out Mm. which is uh well it's possible but it's not straightforward because you're sometimes you're transported or or uh what's it called Teleported. Yeah, you're just teleported, exactly. So you just end up somewhere random and you don't know where exactly. So yeah, well, I was using the all-seeing eye. So it's like, it's like a second program that you attach to your DOS box session. Mm-hmm. So you have to have the right version of the game and it literally does it for you, puts, shows you where you are on the level, maps it out as you walk along. Of course, any of the puzzles with teleportation are completely ruined, so... <laughs> This might be part of the reason why I could go do it in a couple of hours, I think. But. Right. So it's it's a Windows program that just runs alongside your DOS box and shows where you are. And uh, maybe it's interesting to mention that the, these maps are not randomly generated, right? It's the same every time you play it. It's just all a preset layout. But it's still interesting to know. Does it also show where the monsters are? Uh, no, it does show you where levers are. So if there's any buttons, we haven't we haven't really mentioned buttons and plates and things, but it'll tend to highlight all of these. So if the, if you have like a hidden button that sort of you can't really see too obviously, it'll it makes it points them out to you as well, really. So it's, def- it's definitely a cheat. Yeah. Do you know when this was developed? I don't. I think. 
few years back. There's, it works on the first two games, and there's another one that's slightly buggy that works on for the third game mm. that, that never got fully finished. It works well enough to get by. It seems this is a really well-known thing because I, I remember when the month started and people started posting on the forums, this was one of the first things that was mentioned by people like, yeah, you got to get the all-seeing eye tool. There's tools like this for quite a few games, like the original Might and Magics, I think, and some of the gold box games and the like. I've, I've never tried them, but they're probably a good way of playing some of these now if you don't want to, the full 60-hour slog or whatever through an old <laughs> RPG. The auto-map feature is not common in these old ones. Like, that's not something until later, I think. Ultima Underworld had it. Uh, you could even, like, write little notes in there to yourself. I think Ultima Underworld was a year later, though, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it might have even been in Might and Magic too. I'm not certain. It's, I don't think. I don't think Ultima Underworld started it anyway. No. I just know that Lands of Lore, the later Westwood game, that did have an auto mapper. And obviously, I mean, other games and other genres had an auto map. I mean, Doom had an auto map. There's a release for the C64, a port of I Have to Beholder coming out. Uh, very soon, I think, and it has um, an ed- edit automapper. <laughs> wow. So it has the dull-seeing eye built in. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, it actually, yeah, that work, That one works on a Commodore 128, so you can have your second monitor plugged in and it'll show you the map on a second uh, screen if you really want to get kitted That's up. great. That's pretty cool. That's, that's yeah. really yeah. cool. That's nice. Um, I think the dull-seeing eye is only available for Windows, which, you know, if you want to play on like real hardware makes it a bit difficult. That's what I did. I was, yeah, played on real, but I used, I printed out all of the, um, the hint book. So that's got all the maps in it too. Uh, so it felt like, uh, like drawing out my maps, but they were already drawn for me. So I just had a highlighter <laughs> and colored in all the corridors I'd gone down already. Yeah. Well, that works. Cause yeah, so it felt like it felt like the authentic experience, but it was about three times quicker. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, that might be a better way of doing it actually, because you wouldn't see it won't tell you all the buttons and that, and you wouldn't. They'd have to figure out the teleporters, I guess. No, uh, no, the hint book's got pretty pretty detailed with what <laughs> what you have to do. To be honest, yeah, I, fe- I felt a bit bad, but uh, you know, I only had so much time in the month. So you've got to make these decisions. <laughs> exactly. I mean, otherwise you would feel bad about not getting to see everything. So yeah, exactly. Pick your poison. Maybe we should talk a little bit about Westwood and stuff like who made this or is there more? I don't know. I mean, It feels to me like we've covered a lot of what the game is about and what goes into it. But I'm not sure if I maybe forgot something or skipped over something. We probably didn't cover that much about the puzzles and how they work in the game, what sort of puzzles there are. Because uh, we've brought up buttons and things and then they're teleporting a few times. But I feel like I feel like that's sort of the main thing of the game and the combat, to me at least, feels like the combat's just there to break up the puzzling. Because hmm. there's, yeah, just a lot of, yeah, you've got to press the right buttons and the right combination and find the secret doors and, and all that sort of thing. There's a lot of that. And putting items in the right places. Mm-hmm. There's buttons on the walls. There's also runes sometimes, which kind of fun that if you have a gnome in your party or, you know, it's, it's sometimes you can read them, sometimes you can't. So, and they have instructions. Yep. 
And yeah, there's pressure plates. So sometimes you can put items on them so you don't have to stand on them yourself. Yep. There's keys, of course. We I don't think we've mentioned keys at all. There's stone keys and silver keys and different keys to open different doors. Sometimes you, you just have to force doors open. Don't they open halfway and then you smash them until they fully open, something like that? Yeah, some of them. I just remember one puzzle where it said, like, leave your weapons or something. And you have to put weapons on a pressure plate. They kind of feel, <laughs> maybe it's just me, but uh, if you were to take all the monsters out, it's kind of got a similar gameplay to, like, Mist. Ah. <laughs> Mist is a lot like that. You walk around and you have to just press the buttons and see what happens on a different screen and 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 then find the right items to put in the right places and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, Mist is all about the aesthetic as well of the, the, the rendered. Yeah. And also, yeah, just how bizarre the world is and with the little FMVs playing. But yeah, I can see there's some overlap for sure. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, this is way older than Mist. Oh, not that much. It's about two years. Mist came out in 93, I think. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I've, I've often considered Mist to be... Um, Sort of an original creation, you know, like coming out of nowhere, yeah. like, whoa, what's this? And then spawning a whole generation of first person puzzle games. But yeah, you're right. Actually, maybe this first person puzzling is, there's a long tradition of it. Hmm. So uh, maybe Mist isn't as innovative as I, as I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry for dunking on Mist. <laughs> Sorry, Mist. No. <laughs> I of the Beholder did it first. Yeah. Well, the Eye no. of the Beholder did nothing first. <laughs> no. no, true. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, there's also secrets and stuff, by the way. I don't know. I feel there's a core game and Richard just got through it in two hours, but there's a whole hundred hours of exploration around it. <laughs> it's not that big, come on. Yeah, not a hundred. <laughs> no, okay. I mean, yeah, if if you want to draw each tile by hand, it might end up being a hundred hours, but... <laughs> no, but I mean, all the secret stuff, like there's just... Yeah. Uh, there's more going on that's entirely optional. Yeah, there's, there's a guy who's long played it in like under five minutes on <laughs> YouTube, put it that way. <laughs> oh, is this game being speedrun? I'm sure it is. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Let me look that up. Speedrun.com, IFD Beholder, it's right there. Any percent MS-DOS, yeah, four minutes, 52 seconds. It takes twice that long on the Super Nintendo, it seems. Took me longer to create my first party. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, we should talk a little bit about Westwood. I mean, Westwood is a big deal. Before you get started, um, just a quick um, word about other games by Westwood we have covered. Because there's only one, and it's been five years ago. Um, it was in episode six where we covered Command and Conquer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the big, the big title that you think of when you hear Westwood, right? And we we didn't really go in depth with the um, development and the um, company that made it back then. So it's the right time to do it now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't remember what we said back then, but maybe not a whole lot. It's true that for the mid '90s gamer, Command and Conquer is like Westwood's big game. But at the same time, 
they have a long history. I think for an older generation, Command and Conquer isn't the focus at all. Uh, and, and we're known for, for lots of other different things. And maybe even for Eye of the Beholder, to be honest. Which I think was their first like big hit. Although I wouldn't say that their previous games were unsuccessful at all. Westwood was founded by Brett Sperry and, and Louis Castle, who met in... Well, I, I read conflicting things about this, to be honest. I read they met in 1983, but I also read they met in 1982. But, you know, be- beginning of the 80s, they met just fresh out of high school, I think, both both living in Las Vegas. They were nerds and they were into computers and... Uh, they were working as contract programmers. I think they just became friends because they both were into computers. So, you know, they just visited each other's house and played games, looked at their code and, and just, oh yeah, you're in computers too. Oh, me too. So that quickly bonded them. After working uh, as a contract programmer for a while, in 1985, they decided to team up and, you know, do this by themselves, like like form a company and, and just work on their own projects. Although at first they were named Brella Software. I, I read it's for two months this lasted. So <laughs> and after after two months of Brella Software, they renamed to Westwood Associates. On Wikipedia, there's a I don't know where this is from actually, but there's this bit on Wikipedia going into the name Westwood. That it's it has to do with the neighborhood in in Los Angeles. As there's apparently a Westwood neighborhood in Los Angeles. I don't know. I I mean I know Los Angeles from Grand Theft Auto. So that's my only <laughs> <laughs> that's my only uh, link to it. But uh, apparently there's a, a neighborhood called Westwood, and it's well they describe it as um, it's entertainment meets professional. That's what Brett Sperry and Louis Castle said. So I, I guess this is a thing with LA because it's, you know, it's Hollywood, it's acting, it's all, it's got this entertainment uh, hub, but there's also just serious companies, you know, just offices and stuff like that. So I guess this is where they felt inspired to take the name from because gaming is also maybe in that intersection between serious computer stuff and and just fun and entertainment. Um, also, they were not entirely convinced they would do games. I think they, they felt compelled to keep the option open to maybe pivot to non, non-game stuff and just do business software or whatever. So yeah, the name Westwood Associates would basically work for anything. Could, could be the name of anything. Um... Started out by doing contract work for Epics and SSI, uh, mostly porting 8-bit games to 16-bit systems, which was a that was a thing happening from '85 onwards, right? The, the the Amiga came out, the Astaria ST came out, so I think it was a time when when both the 8-bit and the 16-bit systems were existing besides each other, and so they were porting games over from one to the other. Their first original game was released in 1988. Although, if you look on Wikipedia or Moby Games, these guys were productive. These guys released four games in just 1988. So, yeah, Mars Saga is one of them, but they also made 
Blackjack Academy, Donald's Alphabet Chase, which is a Donald Duck game licensed, published by Disney. Um, and they also made a Battletech game, Battletech The Crescent's Hawk Inception. That's, uh, that's an official license for your first game, which is kind of, uh, yeah, that's a big deal. Published by Infocom. We did a Mech Warrior recently. I don't think this game has a ton to do with that. It's more the pen and paper Battletech game implemented in a video game. They were, they were fast out of the gates. I mean, four games in one year, and then they just kept on going from, from that point on. Uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street they made in 89. Lots of other stuff. Another Battletech game in 1990. Lots of games in 1990, by the way. I mean, this is one, two, three, four games again. Goofy's Railway Express for, for Disney again. Dragon Strike, Circuit Edge, and, and another Battletech game. So, yeah. Eye of the Beholder is like their 10th game, even though they only started releasing original games in 88. So this is three years later, but 10 games later. I think Eye of the Beholder was their first real hit. Like, it's the thing that put them on the map. Although they quickly got an, um, a reputation for putting out quality games, I think. People were quite fond of Westwood games. And because of their ties with big names like Infocom and Disney and SSI, I think the games were also quite widespread. An amazing launch, to be honest. They haven't really lived in obscurity for a long time. It's like they immediately were there, up there with the AAA people. Even though it was fairly small. Even if you look at who worked on I Have to Be Holder, I looked at the credits on Moby Games. It's like 10 people. It's like one programmer. <laughs> That's pretty normal for 1991, though. That's big team, I think. <laughs> 91, 10 people. Mm-hmm. It's Brett Sperry himself, who is the director. So that's like the founder, CEO of the company who is also directing the game. There's four people credited as doing game design, but one is the programmer, one is doing the music, and Eddie Laramore is doing, ah, is the writer. Okay, so that makes sense. So there's one writer who's doing game design. I think there's only one person, like, not credited as something else as well that's joseph bostick who's just just there for the game design it's four people doing graphics it's one guy doing both the music and the sound effects so i get what you're saying bjorn that maybe for 91 this isn't such a small team at all but i don't know it feels like a a tight-knit group they could probably fit in one room It was just a different time. I mean, making four games in a year with 10 people, that's just so far removed from how games are made nowadays. I feel like the guy who did the music and the sound effects might not have been pulling his weight. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Might be different in the Amiga port, but uh, (laughs) it was a bit sparse in in the DOS version. It's very sparse, yeah. I take it they didn't have flank that Frank Klepaki or whatever. No, 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 time, they did so. not. No, it was Paul uh, Paul S. Mudra, who did work on, well, a lot of Westwood games. He also did, uh, for example, let's see, audio direction for the Lion King platformer, uh, Legend of Carendia. He did audio direction for Command and Conquer. He was just not the music composer. That's true for a lot of these people, by the way, that if you check them out, they all worked for Westwood for a long time. They're almost all involved with like everything Westwood made. I don't know. I think that's a good sign that 
these people were not, you know, coming in and, and leaving again quickly, but sticking around and working on all their titles. That seems, it seems like a nice place, you know? It's, uh, it seems like they were having fun. This uh, game sold well over 100,000 copies just in the first year. I read it, it sold 150 internationally, like combined. Yeah, that's, that's quite a hit for 91. They did another huge release a year later, right? In 92, when they did June 2. So maybe that's what most people actually know them for. But I don't know. I just feel that later on, maybe you think of them as, as a real-time strategy company. But they did lots of things that were not real-time strategy at all. Lots of fantasy, lots of adventures, lots of platformers, actually. Just lots of cool games. It reminds me a little bit of Blizzard, doesn't it? They exist almost in the same sort of same sort of space, doing the same sort of thing. Yeah, I can see that. Pumping out just lots and lots of games. Yeah, but all really good ones. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a bit like that. In 92, they were acquired by Virgin and renamed to Westwood Studios because they were named Westwood Associates before this. But it didn't really affect their output at all. Yeah, like I mentioned, they made The Legend of Carendia, June 2, Lands of Lord, Lion King Platformer, Command and Conquer, Red Alert, of course. Uh, but they also made a Blade Runner adventure game. So, yeah, they made tons of top stuff. And I think all of these games are great. So they just kept on being a, a top studio all the way into the late 90s. Well, and then <laughs> and then it fall apart somewhat. <sighs> 98. They were acquired by Electronic Arts. That just says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Um, what can you say? <laughs> it was over pretty soon after. Yep. They still had some things in the works and those were released, but yeah, I don't know. They did another Lands of Lore game, for example, in 99. They did June 2000, the remake of June 2 in 98. But I'm sure all of those had, had been in the works for a time by then. And then after that, it was it was not the same, was it? I think the most famous, the game that really captures the decline was Command & Conquer Renegade. That's the first person shooter based on Command and Conquer, released in 2002. I don't think it's remembered as a good game by anyone. I just remember there was some hype, like, oh, maybe it's actually cool to walk around in Command and Conquer, like seeing it from first person. But yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't as good as people thought. And they made some other stuff. Nox seems seems half interesting action role playing game. Another Command and Conquer game, Tiberian Sun. It was, I don't, I don't think it was a bad game to be honest, but it wasn't received as well as the previous ones. Red Alert Two was was somewhat of a success, so that was good. It just kind of fell apart, and by two thousand three, the studio was shut down. Yeah, that's a shame. Mm. That's just five years after they were acquired by EA, and they had such a good run, starting in the mid eighties, and 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 producing quality stuff like throughout their entire existence uh, until it was just ended by external forces. That's sad. Some people carried the torch. Uh, Staff members formed Petroglyph Games in 2003 or 4. 
And amazingly, that studio still exists to this day. So that's cool. It's ma- I think it's mainly programmers. I don't know if there's anything notable they've released, but I don't know. The fact that they're still in Las Vegas, still making games is, is somewhat of a victory. Um, I'm looking at the list of games they made, but I, I don't know any of these, to be honest. Mythian in 2011, Battle for Grexia, Grey Goo. I don't know. Oh, they did the Command and Conquer Remastered Collection too, apparently in 2020. And another studio that was formed, including some former staff, including one of the original founders, Brett Sperry. They formed Jet Set Games, but that's a mobile game studio. So, yeah, didn't quite make it onto my radar, to be honest, but mobile games. It's a thing. (laughs) Um, and the other founder, Louis Castle, I think he, he worked for EA for a while. And he's now the head of uh, Relentless Studio, which is um, formerly known as the Amazon Game Studio Seattle. Still seems kind of tied up in that, you know, large corporate game industry thing. I don't know. At least they're still going. So that's good. Yeah, it's kind of surprising that we didn't go over this with Command & Conquer, Florian, but I, maybe the format of the show was different back then. I don't know. Yeah, we were just starting out. I mean, yeah, we didn't know how to do the show yet. No, exactly. So it was time to cover some... Way- and maybe I think we should play more of these old Westwood games, to be honest, because there seems a lot of cool stuff in there. Definitely. Love to play Legend of Curianda. Kerandia, mm. but also the Lion King platform is really good, although really difficult. Is that a DOS game though, the Lion King one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's it's maybe one of the better platformers made for DOS, to be honest. it's. Uh, I, I think it's also for Super Nintendo, but yeah, it's also for DOS. Wouldn't, wouldn't even bring it up otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Fair enough. <laughs> um... There's another component to all this, but there's really no time to go into deep into this. But I think I think we have a, a bit of an obligation to to do so later. Um, but this game was published by SSI Strategic Simulations Incorporated. That's just a whole. That's a whole topic of its own. I mean, that's an amazing game studio and publisher with a enormously rich history. Uh, founded in 79, so that's really old, really at the start of the whole home computer revolution. Uh, famous for their war games, strategy games, simulation games. Did lots of other stuff, actually. They also did sports games, uh, economic business simulator, space combat, pinball, fantasy role-playing, which is right up here with the Eye of the Beholder. So, yeah, this is a whole subject of its own, but... I think I think it's a bit of a shame that we haven't played any of their stuff so far. So I, th- I think that we have a task for ourselves to set this right. Homework. Yes. Mm. Playing some strategic simulation in games is definitely homework for DOS Game Club. Maybe 2023 should have at least one of their games because, yeah, they are something else. And deserve it to be mentioned. I mean... Yeah, they're one of the greats of this era. So, um, acted merely as a publisher for I Have to Beholder, but still, 
they were also developing their own games. They should get the attention that they deserve. What's next? You you, you take it over, Florian. I'm <laughs> I don't know what to say anymore. I've I've said too much. I'm empty. <laughs> I'm all I'm all talked out. <laughs> Unless there's really not that much left. I mean, we've talked mm. a bit about the graphics before. Um, as mentioned before, I think they look beautiful. There's nothing technically super involved about them. So I don't know if there's anything else to mention that we haven't yet. No, except that Richard said that maybe it's the first VGA dungeon crawler for DOS. I'm, see, I'm speculating a bit, but it certainly could be. I mean, West, Westwood games always look, the pixel graphics of their games and they say right, every one of them looks fantastic, to be honest. So, yes, they've got their own style, I'd say. That's what we had about the graphics. Um, audio, on the other hand, is a bit more minimalistic, right? Mm. So I, I read there's this OPL2 and PC speaker and possibly Tendi support. I don't know why there's a question mark after the Tendi. Yeah, I write that in. I I don't know if, because uh, Tendi obviously had their own sound standard. I don't know if uh, if that was supported or not. I feel like it was, but I'm not sure. It's very light to support it, but it might have been. Hmm. But it's more, it's more belongs on stuff before VGA as a rule. They, they might they, they might have supported well, it. Well, it does support PC speaker, which is even older. So, <laughs> well, this is true. So, Tandy's basically three of them bolted together. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, what's half interesting maybe is that there's no uh, setup utility or or you know install app set sound dot There's nothing like that. You don't need that for OPL2 or PC speaker. Yeah. I mean, technically you have to pick between PC speaker and OPL2, but other than that, there's nothing you can really configure. It's a fixed I.O. port and that's it really. But the consequence of this is that every time you launch the game, it asks you what you have and how you want to play it. Mm. Yeah, but that was still quite common in that time, right? So I remember playing dozens of games that asked me for the setup each time. Yeah. And if, if you don't have to configure your um, Sound Blaster, then it's actually not so difficult. I mean, um, Monkey Island did the same. I think you picked um, EGA and, and um, PC speaker or whatever. And it gets complicated once you have to configure your Sound Blaster IO address and DMA channel and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's true. But it also remembers it. So at least you only have to go through it once. Yeah, with this game, you have to set it every time, which, uh, I don't know, I think it was common. I, there's definitely more games like this. I remember Microprose games also ask this. Uh, other games as well, probably, but I don't know. Just every time I, I, I wanted to get back into it, I thought, oh, <laughs> asking me for VGA again. <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, so as I said, I think in the late 80s, early 90s, that was just still pretty common. Probably especially, I, I don't know, um, did the game run off floppy disks? Maybe they didn't want to um, write to the floppy too much or something like that. Hmm. I mean, that, that's, that's certainly the, the reason why very old games do it. I don't know about this one. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I did read in the manual that there's no copy protection like on the disks themselves. So they're just normal floppy disks. So they do say, please make a backup. Like, yeah, just copy them for yourself. I don't know if that implies that you're playing from the discs, but uh, probably you could. I imagine you could. Yeah, there'd probably, uh, there'd probably be some people in 91 still doing that, playing games off discs. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't remember any installation, to be honest. 
it runs on an apart from from DOS, it runs on a plain Amiga 500, right? And most of those didn't have a hard disk. Right. Yeah, that might be it. So it would make sense that it's playable from floppy disk. Mm, good point. We have a list of versions in our document. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've, we've mentioned this, some of the ports, um, but one yeah. that stands out because it's just a recent development. I mean, um, recent development. I think I read the development started somewhere in, in 2003 or something. And a small team of people have worked on the C64 release, which honestly, I've, I've, I've only watched a video of it and it looks amazing. It looks like a, a very true to the original port of the game. Mm-hmm. Very amazing looking, especially for a Commodore 64 game. Yeah. I think they just announced that it was finished and some YouTubers previewed it, but I'm not entirely sure where or how you can get it. I've looked for a download, but I couldn't find it yet. So I assume it's not completely done, but it, that's really an amazing feat. I mean, they worked on it for 19 years and it looks just brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should definitely look up their project page or something and see if we can link to it because, mm-hmm. yeah, this is this is cool stuff. Um, but if we look at the more traditional, the official ports, it's, it's rather straightforward, really. It's just Amiga and MS-DOS are the original 91 platforms it came out for. And, um, it was released for PC 98 a year later, which is like the Japanese standard. I never know how much the PC 98 and stuff like that, how much it is like a PC or that it's really a separate thing. I think it still runs DOS. Yeah. I don't I don't I don't know too much about the 98 either though. So. I never know how different it is. There's a lot of DOS games released for this this Japanese standard, but I don't know how, how much it involves changing things or that it's just really about translating all the strings to Japanese characters. There's also console releases. In in '94, they released this game for the Super Nintendo and for the Sega CD. That's a way to play it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really have the aesthetic of a Super NES game to me, but yeah, I guess I guess it can work. Yeah, you'd have to change the controls a bit. I'm thinking, but I'm just... yeah, I'm looking at a screenshot, and it has a little mouse cursor. <laughs> so oh no, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's always good. I my guess is that you control the mouse cursor with your gamepad. So <laughs> it's one of those. Uh same goes for the Sega probably. There's also a weird adaptation for the Game Boy Advance which was only released in 2002, so that's like 10 years over 10 years after the original came out. Yeah, I think it's essentially the same game. They somehow, it's not by Westwood, by the way. I mean, this is, uh, it's, it's, it's entirely different. It's published by Infogrames, who, I don't know how they got involved, but yeah, 2002, they released Eye of the Beholder for the Game Boy Advance. That's, that's all, that's all I can say. I don't know. I've not played <laughs> this. Doesn't seem like an amazing, amazing version. I mean, it got reviews in the 40s and 50s, so yeah, maybe not the best. What else? What? Uh, what's? What's more? What? Uh, what else is going on, Florian? Well, usually at this point we talk about reviews from the time. Yes, um, and we have we have Richard uh, with us. So I didn't find any this time. Wow. That's, uh, <laughs> too early. Too early for my uh, magazines. Uh, bummer. I got a couple. <laughs> All right. There we go. 
Yeah, uh, I don't know if you saw the tiny little one that I uploaded on the uh, on the website. Um, I've got just this little compilation, uh, mate. Like it's a, it was an insert in one of the PC format magazines I had, where they just do a little cut down version of all their reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, it says so they gave it four stars. Uh, four, a classic adventure game, roam around dungeons, dealing with deadly monsters, traps, and mystic magic. Against, not as good as Eye of the Beholder 2, though. Overall, a superb adventure, but again, watch out for the sequel. So that's <laughs> all that they had to say in that one. All right. But, um, but so I'm guessing that's based on an earlier review that they published in one of their magazines, but I, yeah, don't have a copy of that. Yeah. It's still nice, though, to see the little blurb that you put on our forums. It's, uh, <laughs> it seems the sequel improved a lot. Mm. It's, uh, yeah, that's what I'm getting from this anyway, is that this, this first game is maybe more of a tech demo sort of thing. And then the second game is the real, the real deal. The second game got really, you did find a review of the second game, right, uh, Bjorn? Yeah, well, that's the one that I had since I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, so it's the same same magazine <laughs> I've been holding on to all these years. Awesome. Um, and yeah, they gave it 89% there. Um, and I suppose part of that is they didn't really change much as far as the engine's concerned. So they didn't have to spend a lot of time programming. They, they could spend all their time making, just making it a good game. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. It looks very similar, but it's all about the content, really. I mean, it's all about what you actually encounter and do, and yeah. Yeah, I felt I felt a lot more epic to me the second game. I just everything about it is just bigger mm-hmm. and sound massively improved soundtrack as well. Still, still mm. only ad lib, but flank definitely had Klipaki in for that one. So you can tell the difference. All right. This review of yours, Bjorn, also mentions the epicness. Yes. Um, It says, a huge game, both in terms of the problem it poses and the sheer physical size of the game playing area. It just seems they they amped everything up. Yeah. I didn't really get this epic feel from the first game at all, to be honest. If if anything, it's tiny. You're in the dungeons. You're in a tiny, I don't know. You're going down sewers. That's not... Epic. <laughs> <laughs> True. What what makes the second game more epic? I don't know. It's um, yeah, just uh, because it it is pretty linear in how you play it, but it doesn't feel like it because you go into one section and then you go back up and you have to go into this other tower, and then once you're finished in that tower, you move to a different one. Whereas in the first one, you're just going straight down, mm. basically, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. It was sort of linear, but it all joins together around this temple mm. that you start out at, and it sort of gradually expands and bits open up. Cool. But I can see how that's more epic. Yeah. Oh, it's much much harder as well. Oh dear. So there is that. It's, it's fairly brutally difficult, <laughs> I found. So. Yeah, there's some very unfair traps. I think in number two. Mm. What else did people say about this first game? It sold a lot, so it, there must have been plenty of reviews as well. The reviews were in general quite favorable, I think. So when you look up lists of reviews, like on Moby Games, it's typically from uh, ranging from the mid 70s to the high 90s. Very, very few reviews from the time are actually worse than 70%. I'm, I'm seeing that the computer gaming world, which was pretty big deal in the early 90s, 
yeah, they also comment on on how they're still waiting for a PC version of Dungeon Master. So, yeah, they've now got this. <laughs> At long last, they say IBM owners need no longer complain. They now have a game like Dungeon Master, a magnificent game that promises to be only the first in a long, we hope, a very long line of releases. I, I guess that's a thing as well. Like we've talked about this about platformers, for example. I mean, platformers are not new by the time they came to the PC, but they were new on the PC. So if you were a PC owner, you were kind of craving this stuff. You've seen it on other systems. You've seen people do this. And maybe it's a little bit the same with this one. It's like maybe you've seen people play Dungeon Master on the Amiga and you're thinking, oh, I wish I could have that. So then IFTB Holder brings that. Yeah, I'd be curious to know how many of the sales were split between P- how they were split between PC and Amiga. Whether it was all as DOS gamers who bought it back then or not. Hmm. Yeah, I don't have any information, but yeah, I imagine the PC is the bulk of the sales. But it was a larger, especially in America, there were just way more people with PCs than Amigas. So, hmm. but it was also the high time for Amigas. Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. And also of piracy. So <laughs> I'm sure there were way more people playing this than the sales reflected. <laughs> one thing I found mentioned in one review was that they complained that the combat is actually real time, which might be hard for D&D players to adapt to. Hmm. And I can see that a bit. We've talked about it before as well. And yeah, I think all the strategic planning in or tactical planning in, in a real pen and paper role playing game is what makes it fun, and that's a bit taken out of the of the scope of this game. Yeah, I think that might be part of its appeal, that it's just simple though, and immediate, so you don't have any of the turn-based strategy stuff you're kind of used to in your gold box type games. Yeah, it lowers the... I was honestly impressed with, with how accessible it is to in general. I mean, apart from the controls, which took me a little bit to, yeah, find out, mm-hmm. but... Well, it's a fair assumption you had a number pad if it was yeah. 1991, to yeah, be yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, this is not really the game's fault. And in terms of where user interfaces and control schemes were back in back then, this game is really nice and polished and simple, really. So, yeah. I'm seeing lots of uh, European reviews as well on Moby Games. Multiple ones in German, in French... I wonder if this game made more of an impact in Europe than in America. I don't know. Probably both. Hmm. It's just a bit surprising to see, because normally you see like the majority of them in English, but that's not really the case here. And the ones I do see in English are from magazines. I don't even, I mean, Dragon Magazine. Is that a, I don't know. What is that? And computer and video games. CVG. Is that a well-known magazine? Yeah, that's fairly big at the time, I think. Yeah, I think that's probably what it is. It's before all the all the PC gaming mags hadn't really started at the time. Yeah, that must be it. Because normally you see, you know, PC format, PC zone, stuff like that. But Yeah, it predates both of them, I think. Right. Seeing here, Dragon Magazine's actually a Dungeons & Dragons magazine. That'll be... Ah. Who would have thought with that name? So, I bet they liked it anyway. It's kind of controversial because they give it a hundred percent. So are they saying? Oh, yeah, I knew it. Wow. Are they saying <laughs> it, this is the superior way to play 
the games? I mean, you would think they were all about the pen and paper stuff, but... I don't think they compared it to pen and paper role-playing, right? I assume they just figured out this is a D&D PC game and this is this is 10 out of 10 because we love D&D and we love PC games. This is for us, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, 10 out of 10. If you relish, relish excitement, a fine quest, top-notch animation, graphics and sound, Eye of the Beholder has got to be in your library. So, well, there you go. If you want to get into this now, it's not particularly hard, is it? I mean, it is on GOG, as mentioned. I think it's on Steam, too. Yep, I checked. Um, you can buy, I think it's called the Forgotten Forgotten Realms, the archives, which gives you the first, or the vo- volume one of the archives gives you the first three or all um, Eye of the Beholder games. And they're like 10 bucks on Steam and GOG, but very often they are on sale. So you can, if you if you're patient, you can maybe get it for three, four bucks. And that includes all three of the games? Yep. Wow, that's nothing. That's amazing. Um, if you want to get a boxed copy, though... That's harder. <laughs> all right. So the um, the single release of the first game is actually, at least in, in Europe, it seems to be relatively hard to find. If you're lucky, you can find it for, for 50 bucks in, a, in an okay um, condition. But you're more likely to pay eighty to one hundred bucks. Wow! While there's there's a tri- there has been a later trilogy release, and that's typically a bit easier to find, and typically under fifty bucks. Hmm. When did you get yours, uh, Richard? Oh, long enough ago that I can't remember. <laughs> before the hype of the before it all blew up again. I certainly don't remember having t- too much difficulty getting them, to be honest, but. It's a, it's a long time, I guess. Yeah. Uh, 20 years, yeah, probably. that was the best time. Um, yeah. Is that it? I think that might be it. What do we have to say, like, if we reflect on the whole thing? Like, if you would have to conclude this, recommend people this, did it hold up thoughts like that? What would you say? Honestly, I think if you are used to modern RPGs and or if you're used to pen and paper RPGs, then the game may not quite be where you think you want the game to be. So it's it's a bit the entire role-playing part is missing. There's no real quest as far as I could tell. I, I mean I didn't finish it, but there wasn't really that much. It looks nice, it sounds okay. The gameplay works, but it's really I found it a bit bland, to be honest. Mm. I mean, I, I can see how it felt a lot different in 91 when it came out. So, Exactly. I think that's the thing. I think this made a big impression on people back in the day. But nowadays, well, there's been so much stuff since that it's hard to be fully impressed by this. Yeah. There's a good chance it has influenced lots and lots of games that we love today. For sure. But for sure. Very often being one of the first doesn't mean you're one of the best. <laughs> not, not in the long run anyway. So Bjorn? I'm not disappointed for starters. <laughs> after even after all the years sort of of building up uh, to playing this for me personally, I I mean I sort of knew what to expect still. Um and so, yeah, no, I'm glad I did it and I definitely got enjoyment out of it. But, yeah, as far as recommending it to someone, it's it's hard because I think there's things to enjoy in there, as I said, the graphics and, and yeah, some of the atmosphere. But it's like there's a lot of 
someone that doesn't have the nostalgia and, and yeah, is used to more modern games. It's a lot of work to get the payoff, I think, for this game. So I'm not, I'm not really sure whether to recommend it or not in that sense. But it did work for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it did. But then again, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm big, obviously, into retro games anyway. I don't play a lot of modern games and, and I, yeah, I like that kind of thing anyway. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, for people interested in the history and the origins of games, this is definitely one to check out. Mm. Yep. So, yeah, what do you think, Richard? Yeah, I'm pretty much on agreement. I don't think, I think it was surpassed pretty quickly, even back then, by similar, other similar games. Uh, I think if you, if, you, I mean, if you fancy playing the whole trilogy, I think the lighter games hold up better. Hmm. And you can carry your party through for each, between each one. So if you fancy playing three in a row, then... I could possibly recommend it, but if you if you just want this is on its own, you'd be better off going for some of the other games, some of the lighter Might and Magic, so maybe Lands of Law, another Westwood one, mm-hmm. or poss- or maybe even something modern like Legends of Grimrock. Well, I say modern, it's probably a decade <laughs> old now, isn't it? But, <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it, is, it is too generic. I think bland probably isn't a bad description, actually. Which is a shame, because it, well, I guess they improved on it with the second game and, and going further. And, and Lands of Lore, in a way, is maybe also a response to what they've learned with this. So, yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd find it Yeah, I'd find it a lot easier to recommend Lands of Lore, definitely. And it's got your quality of life with your auto map and that. So. Yeah. So, I mean, still the game has fans. There, there's no way they would have created the all-seeing eye if the game wasn't worth checking out. So, Or worked on a C64 port for 19 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there is some <laughs> magic to it for sure. But I guess you should, maybe, maybe you should have been there at the time to really be swayed and impressed by it, to really see it. You know, it's not a bad game. It's not that it disappoints. It just isn't particularly memorable playing it now, knowing what we know now. Yeah. Oh well. I don't want to dunk on games. That's my. Uh, it's <laughs> well, it's not. It's not a dunk. I mean, it. Uh, we are saying it looks great and uh, mm. it plays okay. It's just, as you said, it's not very memorable. So I don't think that's a dunk. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, that's it for Eye of the Beholder, I think. Mm-hmm. So, now what? Now what? Um, next episode, which we should record very soon if we want to somehow get back on schedule, is Simant by Maxis. Um, quite interesting title, very different from other games. Right now we are playing Shadow of the Comet, um, yeah, horror adventure game. Next one, November, we will play One Must Fall 2097, robot fighting games. We've done a similar one before, and that didn't work out very well. But I think One Must Fall 2097 is yeah. held very much more in favor. Yes. It's a bit better. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, what was the one we did? Rise of the called? Robots. Rise oh. of the Robots. Yeah, that's probably the worst. <laughs> that must be the worst game that's been on the podcast. Yeah. Well, this we is, can't uh, do only gems. The, the the revenge of the robot fighting game in in one must fall for sure we did a poll by the way we did a poll with four games and and this one won so that's why we're doing it yep and the other three will come after <laughs> yes exactly we'll play all the other ones right um yeah if you're into this dos uh, gaming stuff then you can uh, join us on our website dosgameclub.com where we have forums 
You can suggest games there. Uh, you can also be cool like Peter and send in a voice message to club at dosgameclub.com. We really appreciate those. Um, you can hang out and chat with us on our IRC chat, DOS Game Club on Afternet. Uh, there's a chat widget on our website if you are not sure on how to set that up. Um, we are on social media, notably Twitter, where we're called DOS Game Club. And also we have our own Mastodon instance, which is called dosgame.club. So if you want to join that, you can, I think you can send us a message, right? It's not public, but it is open to all listeners yeah. and people generally interested. So just drop us an email or send us a message and then join IRC. Yeah, whatever. And we'll get you on a post on the forums. It's all fine. And last but not least, if you're listening to this in a podcasting app, then please rate and, and leave a review because it helps to get the show noticed by others. And it also just brings our, us joy to read what you think of the show. So helps everyone. Depends on what you write and what you think about the show. No, it <laughs> doesn't. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll test it. <laughs> please do. But also, please don't ruin our rate. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's it. Uh, thank you all very much for being on and talking about this game. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah it's my okay. pleasure, really. Uh, right, on to the next. So, see you all later. See you. Bye. 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 Bye.